Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus alone, their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And I thank you, Father, that that cannot be changed, that you're the one that's in control. Jesus is the one who determines eternal destiny. He is the one that gives life physically and life spiritually and eternally. And I thank you, Father, that my life is hid in Christ forever. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have given us this glimpse of what's coming at the end of days, that we need not fear whether we're taken out of here in a rapture before or if we go through till the very end, whether we're martyred or not, our life is secure in Christ. I thank you, Father, for the sure word of prophecy, the word of God. And I pray this morning, Heavenly Father, as we wrap up this short series in the epistle of 1 John, I pray that you would teach us intellectually and emotionally and spiritually in our inner being. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> what kind of religion <clears throat> would give people the courage to stand against Caesar and say that Jesus is Lord, he is the ultimate authority, not Caesar, and to do so meant to be fed to the lions? And here we are 2,000 years later in the church of Jesus Christ that is being persecuted severely in Muslim lands who stand up to ISIS and the likes and say, not Allah Akbar, Allah is great. No, Jesus is Lord, he is supreme. There is no greater. When Jesus gave his name, he said, I am. There was no one else to compare to. Yahweh. I am. Jesus is Lord. Only a no-so religion could do that. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, we read, This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son, Jesus. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. There is no middle ground. Either you have Jesus or you don't. Either you're on your way eternally separated from God in a literal burning hell, or you're on your way to God's heaven forever in his presence because of Jesus. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I believe that one of the two or three deepest longings of the human spirit is the longing to, believe, to belong, to be accepted. When I was a freshman in high school, all 115 pounds of me turned out for football. We had a one-on-one -on -one tackling drill. And it was my lot to have to tackle the senior running back. And he come charging at me, and I took a dive, eyes closed, 
No contact. I don't know if he went over me, under me, or around me, but I never even touched him. That happened three times in a row, and I was profoundly embarrassed. After practice that day, Jerry Spencer, oh, I still remember his name, Jerry Spencer came to me, Larry, you're okay. You're going to be you're going to be great. You just need to put on some meat in your bones and have some experience and you're going to be fine. What he was saying is, you belong, I accept you. Oh, that felt good. We all need that kind of thing, don't we? Many Christians are like that, especially when they whiff. They live life in fear, insecurity, guilt, not sure they belong. Life for them becomes futile. A futile exercise of relentlessly trying to please and perform to be accepted with God. That's not how it's done. And every time we try to please and be accepted by God, by our actions, we fail every time. I call this the performance treadmill. And John wrote this little epistle to show us the way off the performance treadmill. In verse 13, John says that we can know. We can have full confidence that we belong, that we have been accepted already, that we have eternal life now. It's not something that we uh, perform to achieve. We can have assurance now. On the, on the screen, it says a truly good self-image finds its origin in God's redemptive acceptance in Christ. We hear so much today about a positive self-image. And the world has all kinds of gimmicks to help us be positive and have this fabulous self-image. A truly good, positive, solid self-image is impossible apart from a redemptive relationship with God through faith in Christ. In Christ, I read in Ephesians chapter 1 that I belong, that I've been accepted in the beloved, in Christ. I am a, a child of God, a little born one, John says. I am a son of God, and that means adopted as a legal heir with Christ. To think that God calls me the Father calls me son. That's a foundation for an incredible self-image. A redemptive relationship with God. And that's where we begin. <clears throat> Confidence of possessing eternal life. That you may know that you have eternal life. Now, who are we talking about here? It belongs to a specific people, you who believe, not those who try real hard, not those who are depending upon good works, not those who are trying to do better than everyone else, thinking that God somehow grades on the curve. Those who go to church every Sunday, no. Those who believe, those who do, do not seek salvation through self-righteous, self-effort. Those who only hope in the gift of salvation through Christ by faith. Confidence of possessing eternal life belongs to a specific people who 
share in common a specific belief. Those who believe in the name of the Son of God. That doesn't, God doesn't save people just because they are people of faith. The members of the Flat Earth Society believe still that the earth is flat, but no matter how hard they believe, the earth will still be round. Faith in faith doesn't save anybody. Faith in Jesus Christ produces salvation. The Son of God who died for our sins, rose from the dead, is coming again. So all that is required is that we believe, right? Well, yes and no. There are intellectual facts that we are to give assent to. It is believing that, the, that Jesus died for our sins, that he, eternal God, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died in our place to pay the consequences of sin, the just consequences of sin, the wages of sin is death. Jesus bore our sins on, in his body on that cross as the righteous indignation of a holy God poured out his wrath on our sin. Jesus bore that in our place. He died, was buried, rose again. These are some of the facts that we believe, we give intellectual assent to. But intellectual assent is not enough. Uh, I often hear, I ask people, Do you, uh, are you a believer, are you a Christian? They say, oh, well, I believe in God. Well, and I always respond the same way. Well, that's, that's wonderful. I'm glad you do. But you need to know that the demons believe in God and tremble. And there's not going to be any demons in heaven. Just saying you believe in God is not going to get you to heaven. It's a starting point. It's one of the facts that we must believe. But individual acceptance is necessary. As John said in his gospel, not the epistle, but the gospel of John, but as many as received him, who made a conscious choice to submit their life and will to Jesus, to accept his forgiveness personally. To them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. Believing is accepting for oneself, and it's accepting the whole enchilada. It's accepting the Lord Jesus Christ. It's accepting the one who is Lord, the ultimate authority, the one before whom and the only one who has the right to determine our life. What is right? What is wrong? The Lord Jesus, the historical Jesus referred to in Scripture, the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus as Savior, we know he is because he is the Christ the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, who would affirm himself by his actions, his miracles, by his claims, and by his bearing of our sins, as it says in Isaiah 53, he would bear our sins. This one who would be the Messiah would be the Savior, Jesus, who is Lord, God in human flesh, the final authority. This is the one in whom we believe the biblical Jesus. 
I love the way Thomas, when Jesus appeared to the twelve and showed him the proof of his living resurrection with the nail prints in his hands, what did Thomas say? My Lord and my God. Jesus is not some kind of religious trinket that we add on. He is eternal God who bore the consequences of our sin. What am I going to do when I see Jesus in heaven? Do you mean before or after he picks me up off the floor? He is God, and we be, we, I will reverence him. I will bow before him. The creator God became my Savior. You see, becoming a Christian isn't just adding this religious thing and then you go about your way. It's a choice of surrendering of one's life and will totally and completely over to his authority in our life. He becomes boss. He is in charge. And our purpose and goal is to know and to do his will that he might be glorified. Now this is, this is an exclusive faith. It doesn't add anything else. Faith plus anything else is not biblical faith. The Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians said that another gospel, faith plus believing in Jesus plus, just in case, something else, is not a gospel. It's not true faith. Saving faith places one's only hope in Jesus. Add anything else and you are just another person trying to cover all the bases with useless religious salve. Eternal life belongs to a specific people who share in common a specific belief which results in a very specific but wonderful benefit. That you may know that you have eternal life fully sure and confident. The Gospel of John, John wrote to the universal uh, approach to people, all peoples, in the Gospel of John. He wrote it in verse, chapter 20, verse 31, that you might believe in Christ and have eternal life. His appeal was that we might believe. The, the epistle of John, 1 John, was written to those who do believe, who have eternal life, so that they might know, that they might have assurance, that they might have confidence and live accordingly that they have eternal life, sure and settled. Why? What's, what's the reason for this? It's the difference between joy and living in guilt and shame. It's the difference between pay, peace and striving. It's the difference between rest and struggle. It's the difference between fruitful service and somehow trying to perform to please God and gain his acceptance. I live my life to serve Jesus because I'm already accepted in Christ. So, how can we know? That's why John wrote this epistle. In verse 13 he says, These things I have written to you, who believe that you might know. Well, what are these things? Well, let's do a little review here. Back, clear back to chapter 1. But if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. 
As we walk in the light, this gives us a sense of assurance that we are one of his kids. Chapter 2. Now by this we know that we know him. If we obey him, keep his commandments. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. And then we've been over this a number of times. He who loves his brother abides in the light. You know, this isn't one of these things where we say, well, I just got to really try hard to love my brother. No. If you're in him, you know you're his. This will just be a natural outflow of, of your life, of love, having a love for the brethren. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming, abiding in him. Uh, there's an awareness of his presence in our lives at all times. We, we depend on him. We walk with him. We live with him. We talk with him before the open book. It's abiding. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Who, he who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. There's been a, a, a whole new attitude towards sin, you know, a whole new relationship, saying the same thing that Jesus says, uh, and avoiding unrighteousness and living in righteousness. This is not something you have to work up. It's something that more and more becomes natural as God is transforming your life. And if God is not transforming your life, you need to go back to the beginning and become a child of God. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. Boy, we've been, been down this road, haven't we? For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Present tense, he doesn't continue on in a life pattern of, of sin. There's been a whole new change of relationship towards sin. There is now a sense of conviction when sin enters our life. And as the Holy Spirit convicts us, we come to a place of repentance and confession and restoration. <clears throat> we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. There we go again. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and truth. Love in deed and truth. And by this we know that we are in the truth. As we don't just talk about it, but it, it becomes a part of our, our lifestyle. This gives us the confidence that we are in the truth. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit of whom, by the spirit of whom he has given us. The spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him and he in God. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Those who believe that Jesus is the Christ who is Lord came in the flesh. The biblical Jesus, 
Not these other Jesuses that float around out there that we hear about, but the true God of the Bible, the true Jesus of the Bible, God in human flesh. Those that confess that, believe that, and trust in that. By this you know that you have eternal life. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These are the things that are written that we might know that we have eternal life. These things are not some kind of checklist. Man, if I am doing this and doing this and doing this, back to the old performance treadmill. These things should be the natural outgrowth of one who is in Christ. It's a a mosaic of the one whose life is secure in Christ. All these things give us confidence that we have eternal life. And, as this passage concludes, much more. First of all, the confidence in the power of prayer. Now this is the confidence, verse 14, that we have. Confidence in prayer. I, uh, I hate to even say that and put it in writing because I do not believe in the power of prayer. I believe in the power of Jesus Christ who answers prayer. Prayer is not a magical rabbit's foot. A Christian who has the assurance of eternal life that comes from the things we've seen this morning gains a confidence, not in prayer, but in Jesus. And that's what the text says. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him, the one who answers prayer. He is the source, the scope, anything, all things. That if we ask anything according to his will, we have it. When one is assured of his salvation, he begins to enter into a relationship with the Savior When it comes to prayer, it's no longer making deals or bargaining or demanding or trying to control or manipulate God. Prayer becomes more about discerning the will of God than the common grocery lists of things we think we need. I cannot think of one prayer in my life that has gone unanswered when my confidence and focus was in praying according to his will. There's a couple of prayers that are still pending. They're not unanswered, however. They're just pending. In my personal prayer life, as I've gotten older and older and older, I ask less and less and less. And I listen before the word in prayer more and more and more. As I discern the will of God, whatever the situation I am able to pray accordingly. 
And it's amazing, the response. Confidence with regard to eternal life. Confidence with regard to prayer. And confidence regarding the practice of sin. And I think this really gets down to the core of what John was talking about in the book of 1 John. You see, when we close our eyes and, and whiff, we don't even make contact, I mean, we really blow it bad. Many people, because of faulty teaching or because they live their life controlled by their emotions, the questions come, does God still love me? Do I lose my salvation? Does God reject me? And if so, will he accept me back? These are the kind of questions we all had maybe early in our Christian experience. Many I've seen, observed, lived for 30, 40 years as Christians in, in, in fear of losing their salvation. And they get on the performance treadmill. And when is good enough good enough? <clears throat> this one is much like the last. Our confidence is not in the power of prayer, but in the promises of Jesus. And so it is here. My confidence that I have eternal life and will always have it isn't found in me, but in him. Those who are born of God do not continue in sin. That's what we're talking about here. Again, this is the present tense. Does not continue in a lifestyle of, of sin. He has a new attitude towards sin. It's the attitude of God. It's the conviction that God has. Why? Because God keeps him, not our performance. God has become our Father in Christ and takes an active hand in this issue of sin. Turn to, uh, or read with me verse 16. If anyone sees his brother sinning, a sin, sinning sin, actually, which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that you should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin. And there is sinning not leading to death. Now let's read the next verse. We, we know that whoever is born of God does not continue sinning as a life pattern. But he who has been born of God is kept by God. And the wicked one does not touch him. Now when it comes down to this whole thing of sinning as a believer, what John is referring to here is not a particular sin, but sinning on. I want to go back to Romans chapter 8, verse 28, which says, all things, God is working all things together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. God is working all things for the purpose and good of conforming us to the image of his Son. That's called sanctification. 
and because God is the one who has predestined that we will become more and more like Christ, the image of his Son, eventually, completely, when we get to heaven, our sanctification is something that God has taken responsibility to work out in our lives. Our job is to abide in him, uh, to, to obey him, to follow him. And in that process, God is bringing sanctification through all kinds of things that he brings into our life. He is the master architect of our sanctification. That being the case, in Hebrews chapter 12, I invite you to turn there, Hebrews chapter 12, when we are sinning because God has entered into a relationship with us as father and son, a familial relationship where he has taken responsibility for our sanctification. There is a family uh, birth and relationship now. And as our father, we read in Hebrews 12, verse 5, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as, as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with a son. For what son is there whom the father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, you are illegitimate and not a son. One of the great proofs that I am a believer, for myself personally, is that I can sin but I can't sin and enjoy it very long because the Holy Spirit brings conviction. And I have to face the reality of what I did. And that leads to repentance, confession, and restoration. The fact that I cannot sin and enjoy it uh, is one of the proofs to me that I belong to the Lord because he chastens me. He's my father. He takes responsibility. There's a relationship that he will not negate or avoid. He will see to it that chastening comes into my life. He loves me. He is a responsible father. That's God's plan. There is a sinning that is not unto death. We'll look at that a little bit more in a minute. But when a believer sins knowingly, deliberately, and without repentance, a hardness of heart, a stubborn rebellion, the Old Testament referred to it of sinning with a high hand. God has a standby plan. It's called death and removal. God does not reject one who is his own, even when he's hardened and stubborn and rebellious and refusing to repent. God, in his mercy and his grace, says, Son, I'm bringing you home. I'm bringing you where we can uh, deal with this face to face. I don't want you to further defame my name or live in the misery that you're in of living life in rebellion to God. There are three instances of this in Scripture Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter, what is it, chapter 5. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, the unrepentant immorality, I believe, in that case. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where the abuse at the Lord's table in communion time, uh, God takes it serious, and so do we. And these are three instances where God went to standby plan. We can never say when somebody dies prematurely that, oh, God took them out. No. That's something that God does, and he and he alone knows when and how. In every case, God assumes the role of father to bring correction to his children. In no case will he ever turn his back or turn us out. We are loved and we are secure in him because we are family. Those not sinning unto death. Not sinning unto death is when there is sin. We take God's attitude. There is repentance, confession, and restoration. Those sinning unto death are those who, in rebellion and hardness of heart, stubbornness, rejection, eventually God brings them home. I see this taught three places in Scripture, and though it is a very hard teaching and not real popular, I went back to the commentaries to make sure, and yes, that's what it says. It says what it means, and it means what it says. Real quickly here, our time is almost gone. At the end of this text, we see a confidence in the privilege of being family. His relationship with us, we know that we are of God, says in verse 19. His righteousness is in us. His reality to us, this is the true God and eternal life. All of through 1 John, he repeatedly tells us that we can know, and he ends with three things that we can know. We can know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. No ambiguity. It's real clear. It's real simple. And we are in him who is true and in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Isn't that a tremendous way to end the epistle of 1 John? This is the true God and eternal life. But he had to add verse 21, which says, Therefore, little children, keep yourself from idols. You know, as I, I thought about this, I think this is one of the most significant therefores in all of Scripture. In light of all these things which give us the assurance of eternal life. Guess what will shake our confidence and assurance? Idolatry. What is idolatry? Well, self-absorption. Absorbed with self is an idolatrous spirit. Self-sufficiency is an independent spirit. Self-preoccupation is basically a denial of God. Nothing else will short-circuit all that 1 John speaks of than idolatry. Kyle Eidelman wrote a little book 
called Gods at War, small g, Gods at War, and he lists the following idols that we as Christians often face. He lists, first, the God of food. Second, the God of sex. How many times do Christians, particularly men, bow down to the idol of Asherah on their computer looking at pornography? That's putting sex before God, immoral sex. I hope you feel convicted if if you're into pornography. It's nothing to play around with. It'll destroy your life. It'll destroy your marriage. And it'll certainly destroy your confidence and assurance. He then lists entertainment. Then he lists success. I bowed to the to the idol of success and achievement for many years. And God brought great conviction to my heart. And I had to confess it and turn from it. Money. Romance. And then he lists last family. How many times do we put family before God? Our family is so important that God takes the hind seat. If God is in first place, family will be in the right place. A high priority. And I want to add one to this list. Church ministry. How many times have people become addicted to church ministry because it feels so good that it comes between them and their relationship with God? All of these, all of the above, speak of the idolatry of me. Anytime we place anything as a higher priority than God, we're worshiping idols. I hope, in light of these things written in 1 John, that if you are a believer, that you can walk with assurance freely in rest and peace with a sense of significance and purpose and life, free knowing that the issue is settled forever. If you're not a Christian, these things really are not reflected in your life. Get with a believer. Talk about it. Go into his word. Settle the issue. There's nothing greater, more satisfying than Jesus. On the great day of the feast at Tabernacles, seven-day feast representing the wilderness wandering, a, a reminder of God's provision in the wilderness wanderings. They added an eighth day, which was the high day, the great day, 
the emotional moment was when the high priest would lead a parade up to the high point before all the masses of people. In great golden jars, he would pour out water, commemorating when Moses struck the rock and God provided water out of the rock during the wilderness wanderings. At that very moment, Jesus stood, it says in John chapter 7, he stood and cried out, all you who thirst, come to me and I will give you springs of living water that you will never thirst and eternal life. I look at my life today I look back a little further than most of you, Chuck and I are a few others maybe, or that age, but nothing dramatic has happened in my life until I look and all the world about me, and you know, I've gone through this life, it's been kind of cool. I haven't had to, to go to jail yet. I, I, been married for 48 years. I have had the privilege of loving on people. I have the power of a clear conscience. I am not struggling with guilt and shame. And, you know, that's pretty, pretty cool. Is that what uh, Rivers of Living Water is? I said in the sermon uh, an hour ago, I really think it's cool that God has called us to be different. We are different from the world. Man, we're, we're, we're out of step. Way out of, way out of time, timing. And those years that I was in the marketplace, and I wasn't the preacher, I was a commercial fisherman, I was a repo man, a tow truck driver, a metal finisher, and these jobs I've had up where I'm out there rubbing shoulders with the unsaved. What I cre- took great delight in was whistling. You know, I just, I, I whistle all the time. There's joy. That's the outward expression of living water. And that's given me many opportunities. When people ask, why are you so happy? I tell them. Yeah, I'm an oddball. I'm different. I don't have share the values of the world. And that puts me way out of step. But I kind of revel in that. I think that's just really cool. I think I'm glad God made it that way. Dear Jesus, thank you that you came to give us rivers of living water flowing from our heart. And sometimes, Father, that means joy in the midst of sorrow. It means joy in the midst of loss. It means through failure, there's the whole emotional thing of repentance and confession, but it leads to restoration and a restoration of the joy that you came to give. I pray, Father, in light of these things that we've looked at today, that each of us would take personal inventory of these things Are they expressed as the mosaic of our life? Or is it missing? 
and we need to come to the Savior. Lord, will you do surgery in our hearts as it is needed, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.